we've been looking at the, the past five weeks at this series on challenging Christianity. And uh, today, tonight, uh, Jago has asked me to speak on how could a loving God send people to hell? <sighs> thanks, Jago. Thanks a lot for that. Um, there's, there's lots of reasons why I'm reluctant to talk about this with you tonight. Hell is it's by far the most difficult thing that Christians are called to believe in. Only 8% of churches in the UK try to teach on the topic of hell. And I think it's probably true that some of the preachers in some of those churches seem to get their kicks from speaking about hell and anger and wrath. And I find that extremely alarming. I think love is more persuasive than fear. And, you know, this this is still quite confusing, isn't it? We're talking about hell and a loving God. Surely this is an angry God, not a a loving God. I don't mean to sort of overplay the the sympathy card, but I also think about the kind of person that I am. You know, whenever we do those personality tests at work, I always come out as the person who uh, just wants everyone to get along. And as a pastor too, I I know that hell isn't a, a niche abstract doctrine for a few particularly intense Christians. This isn't academic for you and me. Each one of us knows and loves people who have died. And then there's so many of you who have been on the receiving end of anger that has been so damaging and scarring. But God's anger is not like our anger. It's not irrational, it's not bent on revenge, it's not out of control. God is slow to anger. And actually, God's anger is essential. In Rwanda in 1994, there were 100 days of genocide. Some 800,000 people were killed with women and children who were hacked to death, many of them hiding in churches because they thought that they would be safe. And in response to this, the United Nations sent in a man by the name of of Gary Haugen, who was a lawyer, to, to be sent in to head up the response, to take charge of the investigation, to work out what had happened. And he was deeply affected by what he experienced, and he went on to set up an organization called International Justice Mission. And this is what he wrote about his experience in Rwanda. He said, The knowledge of God's great anger toward and condemnation of injustice is what gives me hope to seek justice in this world. Standing with my boots deep in the reeking muck of a Rwandan mass grave where thousands of innocent people have been horribly slaughtered, I have no words. No meaning, no life, no hope. If there is not a God of history and time who is absolutely outraged, absolutely furious, absolutely burning with anger toward those who took it into their own hands to commit such acts. God hates the Rwandan genocide. God hates the Holocaust. God hates it when another young person on the streets of 
South London is stabbed. He feels these things deeply, whatever the scale. You know, how could a loving God not? God's anger, it's not opposed to his love, but it's part of his love. When his friend Lazarus died prematurely, Jesus, he, he snorted with rage. Us getting hurt in the rough and tumble of life, it affects him deeply. And so does the sin. So does the stuff that you and I do carelessly and deliberately that muck things up. Here is the, the sculpture by uh, Rodin. You've, you've all seen this. It's called The Thinker. And it was originally part of a, a body of work that was called The Gates of Hell. So not just the thinker, but the thinker contemplating the fate of people that are going to hell. And this is not fun, but we must think about it. We must think about it, we must talk about it. We must talk about it with tears in our eyes. If we never talk about it, it's like we're pretending that people are being saved to something, but not from something. That actually saving isn't needed in the first place. And that is totally disingenuous. Ignoring it and never talking about it. It's, it's not kind. It's not nice. And it's definitely not loving. You know, we're not playing games. This matters forever. And so it matters today. That we and I, you and I, we, we can't afford to get this wrong. The idea that all people, eventually, one way or another, will go to heaven is called universalism. That all people go to heaven in the end. And it might seem like a nice idea, but the Bible doesn't teach universalism. In fact, Jesus actually... Uh, speaks about people responding too late to him and being shut out of heaven. Another very common view of hell is annihilationism, which is the idea that if you don't go to heaven, then you're dead, and that's it. You're destroyed. You are annihilated. That's the end of the story. You are no more. And if, if universalism isn't true, then I, I want to believe in this because the idea of eternal punishment is too much for us to bear. It's too much for us to think about. And you know, all this talk of destruction, well, surely you're just destroyed and, and that's it. But to me, it doesn't fit with what the Bible consistently says. Paul writes this in 2 Thessalonians. He, he says that God will punish those who do not know him and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of, of his might. Now, I know there'll be some people in the room who will say, Jamie, that's just the apostle Paul. I'm more focused on what Jesus says. Okay, well, let's have a look at what Jesus says. In Matthew 25, about the two types of people, he says, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, 
but the righteous to eternal life. This is not a short sort of moment of reckoning and then that's it. This is an eternal experience. This is an eternal punishment. And the themes that we see from Paul back in that verse, in those two sentences so succinctly, the themes there of, uh, of punishment, of everlasting destruction and being shut out, being excluded, they are all ideas that Jesus speaks about explicitly as well. Jesus, who is the most loving person in the universe, he actually speaks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And he describes hell in these ways as, as punishment, as a place of agony and torment, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, as darkness, as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and an eternal fire. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. Jesus is very clear that beyond death, for people who aren't his followers, that beyond death, there is a more terrifying reality that awaits. Some of you are going to be saying, well, Jamie, surely it can't be that bad. You know, surely this is just symbolism and and flowery language, all this talk of, of darkness and eternal fire. But the thing is, we always use symbolic language when we're attempting to describe realities which are actually more extreme than what we're describing. So positively, uh, someone might describe their wife as being like a diamond, when actually they are of infinitely more value than a diamond. And negatively, too, Jesus, he, he didn't talk about fire and darkness because he didn't really mean that, because he was exaggerating and it was just going to be a little bit unpleasant. You know, so don't argue with me about whether this is symbolic language or literal language. If it's symbolic language, then it's not going to be less than fire and darkness. It's going to be unimaginably and infinitely worse than fire and darkness. Yes, it's full on. Because people will be there. But surely, surely for the good people for people who live good lives and just have sort of the garden variety sins like the rest of us. Surely this eternal human misery is a completely disproportionate response to sin. Well, the Bible says that what makes our sin serious is not so much what we do, but it's who it is against. If you imagine me driving a car, might be a scary thought enough, but if you imagine me driving a car and I hit a snail, you know, not so bad. If I hit a pigeon, well, that's not as good, is it? If I hit a dog, well, that's worse. And now I'm legally obliged to stop the car, aren't I? And if I hit a person, well, that's, that's far more serious, isn't it? 
It is who or what I have hit that determines the seriousness of the crime. And our sin is serious because ultimately it's not against people, but it's against God. Remember King David. You know, his particularly glaring sins of of murder and adultery. And he says in Psalm 51, he says, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Ultimately, sin is not doing things wrong to other people. Each one of us has done that. But ultimately, sin is declaring our independence from God. It's independence from God. It's turning our backs on him. Turning our backs on his rightful rule and reign in our lives and living lives our way rather than his way. You know, and it's because of the vast greatness of God. You know, he's not a little snail. He's not a little demigod that's particular to the Western world but the eternal, living, holy, great God that we were singing about before who created you and me. And that is what makes our sin so serious. And the result of our independence is that God gives us exactly what we ask for. The new heaven and the new earth are going to be completely centered around Jesus, completely focused on Jesus. So it would be odd if you rejected Jesus in this life and then expected to dine with him in the next. And so as Jesus warns us, not only is hell a place of everlasting physical pain and punishment, but it's being shut out. Jesus, he speaks about people having an ongoing conscious awareness that they are excluded from and will always be excluded from the thing that is most beautiful, which is a relationship with God. C.S. Lewis writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Even if it's our choice. We might think that this kind of eternal human misery is unjust. But when we read Revelation at the end of the Bible, we see there that when God's judgment comes, the, the, the cry also comes that God will do nothing unjust. That all God's judgments are just and true. He will only do what is right. If you're saying today, Jamie, I couldn't believe in a God who would dot, dot, dot. Essentially what you're saying is that you couldn't believe in a God who isn't a carbon copy of you. When we open the Bible, our starting point must be is that God, he is big and clever. That he may just well think differently to you and me. That he may just well 
know more than you and I do and see more than you and I do. But he also loves more than you and I do too. A couple of chapters before the reading uh, that Christy read for us, Jesus says in, in Luke 13 about Jerusalem, he says, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing or in 2 Peter, we read that the, the Lord doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So not only does God not want people to go to hell, I really hope you're hearing that loud and clear tonight, but he's done everything possible so that you and I don't have to go to hell. There's actually only one way to go to hell, and that's to trample over the cross to say thanks Jesus but no thanks and so you and I and every person on this planet we have a choice either we pay for our sin ourselves in hell or Jesus pays for it on the cross and those are the only two options and whether we pay or whether Jesus pays someone needs to pay because justice must be done and God is a God of justice. Some of you will be wanting me to sort of map out and chart the, the contours of hell. When the Bible doesn't do that, there are lots of things we do not know about hell. And there are things that we do know about hell. I've been clear about the things that we do know about hell. And some of you will want me to talk about hell as being a metaphor. And while you and I may have had experiences that hurt like hell, the Bible does talk about hell being a literal place. Jesus' words and his actions in coming in and dying for us on the cross, it shows us just how seriously Jesus takes hell and how much he believes in hell. What Jesus also does is he tells a story in Luke 15. And who's he telling the story to? Well, have a look there in, in verse 2. The, the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law, they, they sneer. This, this man, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Because the, the, the big sinners that society rejected, the, the outcasts. These are people who are being magnetically drawn to Jesus and are listening to him. This is not simply hanging out. The, the, the Greek here shows that this is not a one-off. This is an ongoing phenomenon of people being drawn to Jesus. And Jesus, he's developing a reputation that he actively and he expectantly accepts them. The connotation here is that he welcomes them as family. And so Jesus, he's not warming the religious leaders' hearts. He's shattering their categories. Jesus is used to being judged, isn't he? And this kind of judging, this is the 
spirit of our age on Twitter and in people's hearts and in the courts of public opinion. We're open and we're enlightened and we're tolerant right up until we throw you into the stocks. All condemnation, all judgment, no grace whatsoever. And so Jesus, he turns to these moralizing teachers who are judging him. And he tells them about a lost sheep and a lost coin, and as if he hadn't made it clear enough, he talks about a lost son. And this son wants independence. Remember that sin is living independently of God. And look there at verse 12. What does this son say to his father? He says, I want the material benefits of you. I want your money, but I don't want you. You're in that culture. And so he goes far away and he lives it up and he burns through the cash with prostitutes and with profligate living. And after being reduced to feeding pigs, there in, in verse 18, he's sort of rehearsing what he's going to say to his father. He's, he's writing this speech and what he's going to say is, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You think he's being really humble here? He's being manipulative. He's trying to bargain with his father, but you can't bargain with God. You can't manipulate him. You just need to accept that you need him to to save you. And then there's also the problem that when he gets back to the village, before he can get back to his, his actual home, his father's house, the community, they would perform a ceremony called the Kezazar ceremony. And what they would do is they would break a large pot in front of him. And they would say, as shattered as this pot is, that is how irreparable, how shattered things are between you and us. You have brought shame and you are now totally cut off from your people. Total rejection. And so it's pretty bleak here. The options are either uh, starvation or, or shame. It's the only thing that can save him. His only hope is his father. So there in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he runs. Does his father care that he's got to shame himself by lifting up his tunic and running in that culture? No. All he wants is his son back. And as you see in this depiction by my friend Charlie Mackesy, this boy, all he can do is he just collapses into his father's arms. And the story doesn't end there. The, the older brother, he's furious. He's irate that his younger brother has been accepted back and that he is being celebrated. And he says in verse 20, 29, he says to his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And I've never disobeyed your orders. This guy's a goody two-shoes. 
but he's just as lost as his other brother. God doesn't want slaves. He wants sons and daughters. That's all he ever wanted. And then there in verse 31, the father says, my son. The word here for my son is actually a, a word that can be used for, for either sex. And it's a particularly strong word that means a, a cherished child who is not independent but lives in total dependence on their father. This brother needs to learn to stop trying to earn his way. My salvation is, it's either based on, on my performance or Jesus' performance. I'm going to take Jesus' performance every day of the week. We can't earn our way to heaven rather than hell, but we can depend on Jesus to get us there. And this picture of an embrace, this is just a tiny little glimpse into the eternity that awaits us. What we see on the cross is that Jesus, he stretches out his arms wide so he can embrace us, so he can enfold us in his love. Paul writes, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? None. There is no condemnation. And so judgment is not preparing yourself to meet with God by bracing yourself. But it's by collapsing into this embrace of the Father. Not independent, but utterly dependent on Jesus Christ. Can you see the, the mercy and the grace in his eyes? The love and the compassion that moved him into action to run towards each one of us. We think it's called the story of the prodigal son. It's actually the story of the prodigal God. The definition of the word prodigal is recklessly extravagant and having spent everything. God was willing to, to pay the price of Jesus so that he might spend eternity with you and me. And Jesus, he is the loving God who experienced hell for us. The agony and the torment and the shame and being cut off from God God's right and just anger at the Rwandan genocide, at the slave trade, at selfishness, at my sin, at your sin. All of that anger, all of that wrath was poured out on Jesus at the cross. And that is what Jesus dreaded most. More than the nails in his hands and in his feet. It's been bushfire season in Australia. 
and it's been a magnitude and an intensity unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And they say that the safest place to be in a bushfire is to be where the fire has already been. I am not moving from the cross, not one inch. Jesus has experienced the fire. He has experienced the judgment that you and I deserve. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. A few years ago, there was a study of the top phrases that people most longed to hear. The top one was, I love you. Number two was, I forgive you. And number three was, supper's ready. Do you see Jesus running towards you? Do you see the mercy and the grace and the love and the forgiveness in his eyes? Do you hear him saying to you, I love you, I forgive you, supper's ready. How will you respond?